And I, I just want to precursor this message with just this little thing that this is probably not going to be the cutest or funniest or entertaining message that you've ever heard. But if you're here to be entertained, you're probably in the wrong place. Uh, I think you know that by now from my preaching. But I will say this. I think this message will contain some of the most important truths that you have ever heard, that you will ever hear, some of the most important truths that will cause you to reflect upon and be transformed and ultimately say that this world is not about me. This world is not about us, but it's about Jesus Christ and his glory. So my prayer is, as we go just a little bit deeper today, as we kind of put on our scuba gear, we're going to go a little deep. I, I left us a little light last week so I could go a little deeper this week. I pray that our affections for the Lord would be stirred, that we will conform all the more to the image of Jesus Christ by the truth of his word. And so let's look at our text today as we begin to ascend deep. And we found the clicker. It fell in a tiny hole through the stage. So thank you, Ron Halliday, for your excavation of, of the... <laughs> but let's, let's read together. Uh, it does have battery, let's hope. Okay. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And what we're going to do today with our text is we're going to look at verse 5, and we're going to treat verse 5 as a sort of hinge verse for us. And what you should think of when you think of a hinge verse is kind of like a hinge on a door. It connects the door to the frame, and if you don't have a hinge... Your door's not going to work very well. The hinge is a very uh, important point of connection, or you could say bridge, between the two items. So what we're going to do is verse 5 in our text, it acts as our hinge primarily for verses 6 and 7. We're going to open the door and go forward to verses 6 and 7. And then it kind of draws us back as we go the other way through the door. And we're, and we're going to be looking at the verses uh, 2 to 4 kind of, and, and very briefly. Um, and this approach is a little unorthodox. If you know anything about expositional preaching, normally you just sequentially walk through the verses. But this is, I am convinced that this is the right approach with verse 5. So here's our hinge verse again for you. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The mind of Christ is yours in him. And notice, have this mind. Why the mind? The mind is so critical. The mind is where we understand. The mind is what we apply and what we fill our mind with will ultimately determine how we live as Christians. This chart is very helpful. This chart is uh, one of the top biblical principles of my life. And I wanted to put it together to show you in hopes that this would also become one of the top biblical principles of your life. Because what you fill your mind with matters. Why? Because what you fill your mind with forms your thoughts. This is a basic concept. This is not the deep part of the sermon, I promise. This is very logical. What you think about will ultimately determine how you behave. Maybe that is new information to you. It all starts in the mind. You fill your mind, right? You, forge your th uh, you, you, you form your thoughts and you forge your behaviors, 
So what are the things you're filling your mind with? What are you putting before your eyes? What are you reading? What are you watching? What are the conversations that you are entertaining in your life? What is the content that is going into your mind? Because what you fill your mind with will form your thoughts, and your thoughts will forge your behaviors. What starts in the mind will eventually produce the fruit of your life. This is who you will be if you don't curb nasty thoughts, if you don't curb the thoughts that bring you down a spiral. It will be the fruit of your life. Everything starts here with what you're filling your mind with. And I can't tell you how many times I make this connection in pastoral counseling. People come and they confess the sins that they're, they're struggling with, that they just can't seem to kick. They go uh, weeks to weeks to weeks without doing that sin, and then they fall back into it, and they binge that sin. It's like they go on a train worse off than the first time. And it doesn't take long for me to connect to the point, what are you filling your mind with? So for an example, a common one, I just can't kick pornography. Okay, I go for weeks, I go for weeks without viewing it, and then I fall into it and I just can't seem to get out of it. I just ask the simple question, well, what are you watching on TV? And they'll explain to me what they're watching, and I go, well, that, that makes sense. What you're watching is filled with sex scenes, scandalous dressed women, and innuendos. You're conditioning yourself. You're teasing yourself. You're getting as close as you can to the line without trying to cross it. But guess what? You poke the bear in the basement too many times, he's going to wake up and bite you. Right? You're conditioning yourself. Maybe it's gossip. You just keep filling your mind with social media. I can't stop gossiping about people. What do you do? Well, you have your Instagram open and Facebook open every second of the day. And what you're looking at is just stories of other people's life constantly. No wonder why you gossip, because all you have in your brain is somebody else's information. And I tell people, maybe you need to cut this out. Cut out that TV show. Cut out social media. And the response is always the same. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, that's my Christian liberty, pastor. No, don't broach. I, I, I'm free in Christ to do what is profitable for me. But your liberty, church, is not a license to sin. Your liberty in Christ is not a licensed sin. And no, this is not legalism. This is the farthest thing from it. Jesus says, if your hand or your eye causes you to sin, what does he say? He says, cut it off or pluck it out. Now, before you get some spoons and saws, he wasn't talking about physically doing it. It's metaphorically. But what he's telling you to do is, what drastic steps do you need to take to finally kill that sin in your life? What do you need to cut off in your life? What do you need to pluck out? What are the things that you're putting before you that are slowly bringing you down the slippery slope and forging your behaviors? What needs to be cut off? And yes, this is drastic. And the reason why it gets pushed against is because it's uncomfortable. And, and what the problem is, the sad reality is in our sinker-sensitive sen church movements is that we have labeled any type of sin-killing as legalism. Oh, no, 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 that's just legalism. No, those are just those old-timey Baptists. You don't have to listen to that because it's inconvenient to how you want to live. That's why we call it legalism. All of the sinful actions can easily be curbed in your life if you just start by purifying your mind. Romans 12 says what? Be transformed by the what? The renewing of your mind. 
That's why I encourage you to read your Bible, not because it's a religious endeavor that you just get to check off a box, because what you fill your mind with transforms you. The truth of God can transform your mind. And if your mind is transformed, guess what? Your thoughts are transformed. And if your thoughts are transformed, your behaviors are transformed. This is why we have the fruit of the Spirit. If we don't see fruit in your life, that's a big red flag that there might not be salvation in your life. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Renew your mind daily with the word of God. Put it before you. Let your thoughts be transformed. And just think of that. How would that transform your life if you allowed your mind to be transformed by the word of God? Have that among yourself. And from this, we're going to look at two major points. And yes, we're getting to the incarnation. And our two major application points are connected to the incarnation. The first one is this. The incarnation is a mind-boggling humility. Verse 5 launches us into the glory of the incarnation as it takes us from verses 5 to verses 6 and 7. And in verses 6 and 7, we see the humility of God on full display as Christ takes on flesh, and we can't fully wrap our minds around that. But that doesn't mean we should shy away from it just because we can't fully comprehend it. Rather, if you remember last week, we should try to grapple with this. We should try to wrap our minds around it. And yes, it will make your head a little numb. But that's where worship starts to pursue, uh, 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 start to overflow from your life. Because when you can't wrap your head around God, all you can do is worship him. And as we come to verses 6 and 7, we must understand that Christ came to earth, and we have to acknowledge what Christ left behind in coming. Because before the incarnation, think about it, Jesus... God the Son existed eternally in perfect harmony, in fellowship, in mutual love with the Trinity. The triune God eternally existed in a glorified state with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then consider the impact of Philippians 2.6, which says, Who though was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What? What does that mean? How do you wrap your head around that? And there's so much here. And, and we could be here forever just on this verse. But what's critical to understand is in verse 6 is the difference between, if you're taking notes, personal equality and positional equality as it relates to Jesus and the Trinity. Let's make this very, very, very clear. When Jesus leaves heaven, he does not surrender his deity. Okay? He does not stop being God. Jesus Christ has always been and always will be fully God. Rather, when Jesus leaves the glories of heaven to subject himself as a human on earth, what he does do is he relinquishes his positional equality with God. His positional equality. So he is still fully God in person, but he relinquishes part of his position with God. So, he was willing to leave heaven, right, and subject himself to us as human. And which means then he left perfect glory so that he might endure sinful man. And this willingness means that he knowingly subjected himself to be mocked, ridiculed, and eventually killed. 
the humility we see in Christ coming to earth is Jesus giving up his divine right to be free from abuse and suffering. Because obviously God is not subject to any of that. And Jesus could have come to earth. He could have kept all of those divine, uh, the, the, the rights to not suffer or, 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 or be punished or anything like that. He could have came in full glory, but he didn't. He came willingly and gave them all up, subjected himself to suffering, abuse, and the ramifications of a sinful world. And just think about that for a minute. Jesus gave up perfection, perfect relationship, and glory to come to earth for you and me. That's astounding. He relinquishes his position because he loved us so much. Remember, he never lost his personal equality. He never stopped being God. That would be impossible. But he did relinquish his personal, or sorry, his positional, positional equality. Think about it this way. God the Father was never spat upon. God the Father was never falsely accused. God the Father was never beaten or crucified. So in that sense, church, the Father is greater than the Son. Now, before you run up here and punch me in the face like St. Nicholas did to, you know, Arius, if you read FBC Weekly, okay, good, good, just chesting out there. Uh, 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 because this can be taught. You can condemn someone as a heretic easily on this doctrine because this doctrine is easily mistaught. So let me explain. Jesus says this about himself in John 14, 28. The Father is greater than me. But what he's talking about is what we're talking about right now, is that God the Father and God the Son are both fully God and equals, but in the sense that the Son subjected himself under the Father by being sent by him to, uh, to receive punishment, torture, and treatment, that put him at a lower position, a lower position, but fully all the same time attaining his perfect perfection in the Godhead. Hebrews 2.9 brings the clarity we need. It talks about this. It says, Jesus was temporarily, temporarily made lower than the angels. In the incarnation, this is what it boils down to. Jesus Christ made himself nothing. Nothing. In essence, what it means is that Jesus voluntarily relinquished, his, uh, relinquished the prerogative of freely exercising the divine attributes and subjected himself to the will of the Father while on earth. Therefore, the fact that the Son took on the human nature and he made himself subservient to the Father is no way in any means denies the deity of the Son, nor does it diminish his essential equality with the Father because it relates to role and not to essence. This is the part that just kind of hurts our head, right? Like, what are we talking about? And it should cause us to worship. It should produce gratitude in our hearts, uh, in our lives, as we wrestle with this truth. The fact that God the Son was willing to leave pre-incarnate glory was an unfathomable act in demonstration of love. It truly is an unfathomable act. It truly is a mind-boggling humility. And right now, what I want you to see is Jesus did this out of the motivation of love for you. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. The incarnation is the infinite illustration of Jesus taking the lower seat. Now contrast that with our lives. We become so obsessed with status 
we become so obsessed with the higher chair, right? We walk into places and we want people to think we're important. We want people to respect us. We live in a me, me, me culture. It's all about me. And sadly, many churches cater to that. And the church is becoming more about making people comfortable than it is about causing them to worship God. Right? They've changed songs. It's all about me and all the wonders that I do. Oh, maybe that's the church down the street. I don't know. But it's me, 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 me. I deserve it. I should have it. It's all mine. And if I get it and it means others don't, so be it. But then we look at the Christmas story and we see Jesus Christ himself taking the lower seat. The one, only one in all of history that could rightly demand all respect, all worship, humbly takes the lower seat. Humbly steps out of glory. Humbly steps out of his position and prestige because he loves you. Because he loves you. And I encourage you as individuals this week to just take time and sit in the presence of God. How often do we do that? Just sit and marvel at this and be still and know that he is God. And then thank him. Thank him for the humility in the incarnation. Thank him that he would cause himself to become so low and treat it so terribly for you. Thank him that he would do this. That he would do this so we might be saved. So we've looked at verse 6, and now let's look at verse 7. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Now notice the, that fir, uh, first, uh, first verse there, uh, sorry, the first phrase there is that he emptied himself. That phrase alone has had more ink spilt and debates ensued over the centuries to what it means. And the question that should naturally fill your mind, unless you're Ron Halliday, he already knows, but unless it, it should naturally fill your mind is what did Jesus empty himself of? What did Jesus empty himself of? And the Greek word here is kenosis. Right? The Greek word there is kenosis, and this has led to a theory that is called the kenotic theory or the kenosis theory. And the kenosis theory, by the way, is heretical. Don't believe it. Uh, uh, so please hear my next words as this is untrue. The kenosis theory teaches that when Jesus came to earth, he emptied himself of divine attributes. So the kenosis theory would teach that Jesus gave up his omniscience, Right? His, his knowledge that Jesus uh, gave up his om uh, omnipotence, his power, and his omnipresence, his everywhere at one time, all the time. And they would argue that he became man, not only did he relinquish, relinquish his position, like we believe, he also relinquished some of the attributes of the person of the Godhead. He relinquished his divinity. And we must understand and hold to at all costs and defend as faithful Christians of the truth that it is impossible for Jesus to become less of God. He is fully God. He can't become less fully God without ceasing to be God. If he's God, he is God. And we have spent three weeks now discussing this subject. So through the incarnation, then the deity of Christ was not subtracted, but rather, the humanity of Christ was added. Let me say that again. Through the incarnation, the deity of Christ was not subtracted. Rather, the humanity of Christ was added to him. So it's subtraction by addition. It's just biblical math. It never makes sense. 
right? He made himself lower by adding humanity on him. He is perfect God. And he stepped out of that by clothing himself in humanity. And that very right there made him nothing. It's subtraction by addition. Think of it this way. Think of a king who is sitting on his throne. He's dressed in all his royal garbs. He has all authority in the land, all power. He can make all the decrees. But one day, he got a little bored. Not that God got bored, but, you know, this guy did. And he put on some, the clothes of a peasant. He stripped himself of all his royal robes. And he walked along the marketplace with all the common people. His authority is still his. His appearance look as if it's changed, but all the authority is still his. He is still king. All the control and power are still his because he is still king. You see, Jesus, just because he changed his look, just like the king changed his clothing, took on a different type of appearance, doesn't change the authority that he has in his person. He is king. And this is what Christ did. The king of glory came down from his throne to walk among commoners like you and me. It makes you think of the lyrics of how many kings. I can't believe we haven't sung that yet this year, right? How many kings step down from their thrones, right? How many kings? How many kings would step down from their thrones? This is fundamentally what separates Christianity from other false religions of this world. What other faith base has a king of glory coming down from his throne to live amongst his people as equals in a sense, in humility, to die for us? You see, Christianity is not, hey, you come and prepare the table for the king. Christianity is, hey, the king has come and prepared the table for you. That's humility. What kind of king leaves his throne? The answer is, is an awesome king. A loving king, a gracious king, a merciful king, a generous king, an unfathomable king filled with humility. That is the type of king that leaves his throne. That is King Jesus. And this makes me think of the lyrics of the Christmas hymn that I'm not sure many of you might be familiar with, but I'll put it up. Can anyone guess what hymn that's from? You're allowed to answer, Agnes, if you have it. (laughs) It's from a Christmas hymn called Once in a Royal David's City. It's an older one, but I love it. He came down to earth from heaven, who is God and Lord of all. In his shelter was a stable. Wow. In his cradle was a stall. With poor and mean and lowly lived on earth our Savior holy. This Christmas hymn captures the humility of Christmas. Just look at those words for a moment. He is the Lord of all. He lived in pre-incarnate glory, free from pain and suffering. And he came, and his, and, his, and his shelter was a stable. And his cradle, that was a stall. And he lived among the poor and lowly to eventually die as our Savior. This is our verse in Philippians today in this song. He emptied himself in the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Marvel at this, this Christmas season. And I did a lot of marveling as I wrote this one. I probably, I've read more on this subject just to make sure I wasn't leading you guys astray. Because this is a a complex truth here. 
And I did a lot of marveling trying to bring this down to a level that was attainable. And we're just scratching the surface. But a quote that I found that really helps summarize Christ coming down in, in humility is from a pastor named Jarrett Wilson. And, and it's a little wordy, but I will explain it after I read it. It says, uh, when we put our minds long to the idea of Jesus being 100% God and simultaneously 100% man, then nat- uh, they naturally feel overwhelmed. The orthodox doctrine of the incarnation is compelling, beautiful, biblically sensible, and salvifically necessary. But it is nevertheless utterly inscrutable. And that's okay. In the end, the incarnation is not for analysis but it's for worship. What he's saying is, yeah, grapple with this truth. Don't shy away from it. Fight with it. Yeah, it's complex. Wrestle with it. But don't get discouraged if your mind becomes overwhelmed because you're not alone in that. Even the greatest theologians get perplexed on this subject. The incarnation is not meant for you just to analyze and understand so you could move on to something greater. The incarnation is meant to demand your worship. Demands your life. Everything given to the one who gave it all for us. God is after your worship this Christmas. He is after your worship in every season. Let it move your family to worship. Let Worship as a family. Maybe this is the first time you'd ever do it. Worship as a family. Let it move you as an individual to worship together. Why not pause in your homes this Christmas, and point your eyes to Christ? Why not before you get up from dinner, you just take a scripture, you read it, you reflect on it, and then you pray as a family. You worship as a family. Make this season and all seasons of your life worship of the one true king. And you got to hear this, church. Worship is more than just singing four songs on Sunday morning, okay? Worship is your life. It is your life. Look at verse 7 again. It says, by taking the form of a servant. He emptied himself by taking a form of a servant. And the taking the form of a servant is the mind-boggling humility just continuing. One of the ways this phrase of taking the form of the servant is, is captured in the Bible that every commentary I read pointed to is found in John 13. When Jesus washes his disciples' feet. The text says in John 13, and I want you to notice the parallels to our verses today. It says, and he, Jesus, rose from supper, and he laid aside his outer garments. And taking a towel, he tied it to his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. I mean the beauty and astounding humility of this moment in light of the incarnation is incomprehensible to me. You gotta, you gotta hear this. The towel was reserved for the slave, the lowest of the low in that society. The disciples would never dream of taking that towel and washing each other's feet. They would never have thought of that because they were too proud. That's for a slave to do. That's not for me to do. But then the Son of God, the Lord of glory himself, rises from the table, lays aside his garments, takes up that towel, and begins to wash the feet of his disciples. Just picture that. And I think the disciples at that moment probably didn't fully understand what was taking place. I think they knew a little bit. 
but I think it would fully come at a later time. And with my imagination, I try not to run too wild with this, I was just kind of picturing it. They're probably laying in bed one night after watching Jesus ascend into heaven in all his glory, and they're laying there, and they realize, man, God washed my feet. Like God himself wiped the dirt off my feet. Imagine the realization of laying in bed and knowing that the creator of the earth humbled himself and wiped my feet clean. Imagine the worship that would have ensued in that moment. Imagine the life-altering change in their life when the truth started to connect in their mind that God God wiped my feet. God cleaned my feet. But hear this, church. Even greater than Jesus wiping your feet, he humbled himself and he died for your sins. There's no greater truth than that. That Jesus, king of the universe, didn't just wipe feet, dirt from feet. He also suffered and died for you and for all mankind. Every one of us right here as children of God can state that with the same unfathomable expression of gratitude and love and adoration to him. And then notice again in verses 7 that he was born in the likeness of man. Alistair Begg says on this subject, rather than asking the question, what did Jesus empty himself of? The more biblical question now with all that information is, what did he empty himself into? What did he empty himself into? The answer to that question is, Jesus emptied himself into the flesh of men, being born in the likeness of men. And then Alistair Bay continues in his his quote, Jesus did not approach the incarnation asking, what is in it for me? Rather, he asked, what can I give? He didn't ask, what can I get out of this? But what can I give? In coming to earth, Jesus said, I don't matter. I'm making myself nothing. And you could just imagine, but Jesus, you're going to be born in a manger. Doesn't matter. But Jesus, you're going to have nowhere to lay your head. Doesn't matter. Jesus, you're going to be an outcast and a stranger. And so be it. Jesus, they're going to put you on a cross. They're going to ridicule. Your followers are even going to desert you. That's okay. And right there is what it means that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He came to serve. Verse 5, remember, is our hinge verse that pointed us forward to the mind-boggling reality of what Jesus did and gave in his humility. But what we want to do now as I close is we want to just pull the door the other way and look back at verses 3 in four, which brings me to my second and last point, which is the incarnation is a mind-renewing example for us. So we look forward, now we go back, and I think by going back, it's going to show us how we should think and live as true Christ followers. So here is what I want you to see. I want you to look at this chart that I put together. I know it's a little small, but what this verse is telling us with with verse 5 as our hinge verse at the top, have this mind among yourself in Christ, and then we see the mind of Christ. We see that the mind of Christ is a mind of selflessness. The mind of Christ is a mind of submission, and the mind of Christ is the mind of servanthood. 
But now notice with verse 5 as our hinge, we're going to see that because Christ had the mind of selflessness, we are also told by the Apostle Paul to do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. See how it's connected? See how it's hinged? Notice the hinge between Christ's submission and our call as a church to count others more significant than yourself. We see Christ's mind of servanthood, and then in verse 4, we're called to look also to the interests of others. So it's all hinged together on verse 5 with having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We have this mind of becoming less and serving others because the ultimate example of yours and mine is Jesus. And Jesus' example is not meant to discourage you like, oh, I could never do this. Rather, it's supposed to spur you on to, this is attainable. I can do this through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of me. And here's where the incarnation becomes so beautifully life-altering. What our verses are calling us to do today is take on the mind of Christ. And the question is, how do we take on the mind of Christ? Well, the first thing we need to do is we need to take on a mind of selflessness right? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So what we're learning right here is when we have the mind of Christ, we must have a mind of selflessness. When we have a mind of selflessness, guess what? We win. I know it feels like you lose when you take the lower chair, but you actually win. The more we decrease, church, the more he increases. And the more he increases, we have more of the joy of Christ in our lives. Again, it feels like you lose at first, but you actually win. And I implore you as I try to exhort my own heart and mind this week to walk into Christmas this year determined to be selfless. Spouses, be selfless with one another. You won't lose. I know you might feel like you lose, and you might be thinking, well, hey, you don't know my husband. He's a jerk. Or, hey, hey you don't know my wife. She's controlling, and she's going to walk all over me. Just trust the Lord with that. Because you're called yourself as an individual to live selflessly. And when you live selflessly, you win. I like to explain it this way. Be a thermostat this Christmas. Right? You get to set your own temperature. You don't have to be a thermometer and rise and fall with the temperatures around you. You get to determine how you respond, how you react, and how you reply. You don't get to control anyone else but yourself. So be a, be a, a thermostat this Christmas. Live selflessly, even if others are living selfishly. Parents, be determined to live selfless with your children this Christmas. Everyone, single, married, if you have family here or not, be determined to conduct yourself and live selflessly this Christmas. And one of the great ways you know that selflessness is growing in your life or you have achieved it, which is kind of hard, I think, on this side of eternity, but is that, great, that gratefulness begins to bubble up in your life. Being a grateful person, a grateful person, sorry, understands how much they have been given or were granted from Christ. And therefore, they don't need to find fulfillment in other things. They're not looking at situations and people and going, what can I get out of them? They know they, what they have in Christ and they are satisfied. Gratitude is powerful. Gratitude is what keeps selfishness at bay. When selfish thoughts arise, you can combat it with gratitude in the Lord. Pray. 
It's powerful. Thank God. Be grateful what Christ has given you. Paul Tripp says, the DNA of sin is selfishness. The DNA of sin is selfishness. So I flip that and I go, well, if the DNA of sin is selfishness, then the mind of Christ, the DNA of the mind of Christ must be selflessness. (laughs) Play on words. Let's go into Christmas selflessly this year. Secondly, to take on the mind of Christ, we must take on a mind of submission. Philippians 2.3 says, But in humility, count, your, count others more significant than yourself. When we believe in submission, we believe in the significance of others around us. And may this be true in our homes and in our families and in our community this year. And how do you do this? Well, here are just a few examples. This list is not exhaustive. We could add to it, but just try to talk less and listen more this year. Right? Maybe you could expect less and love more this year. Maybe try to judge less and pray more this year. And the list could go on and on. This is the mind of Christ in us. It's a mind of submission. It is the mind of loving others because we believe they are more significant than us. Do you believe that? And how would this change how we treat people? And thirdly, how we take on the mind of Christ is we take on a mind of servanthood. Philippians 4 says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know what's so powerful and strangely fun to do, and I try to do this a lot, is that but when you walk into any context, you say, I'm going to serve. I'm going to serve to the best of my ability. I'm going to be a serving maniac. Before you even walk into there, you just determine, I'm going to serve. I I love to do this when I come into church, into family events, into the community. How can I serve? What can I do? And just imagine the impact you could have on your family this year if you said, you know what? Before we get to Christmas, I am determined to serve my family selflessly this year. Imagine the impact you could have on this church if you said, you know what, I am determined to serve Christ to the best of my ability this year. Imagine the impact you could have on Drum Heller if you were to join into community events and do all the jobs that nobody signed up to do. And do them well. And serve. You're not doing it so people praise you. If you are, you better quit now. You're wasting your time. You're doing it because it's a way you can love people. It's a way that you can have the mind of Christ. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Can you imagine if we as a church fully had this mind? We should, and it's my prayer that we would, but just picture it with me. Imagine if we had the mindset of humility, selflessness, and submission and servanthood. How that would change the very nature of our church and what Christ has called us to be. There would be no room for gossip. There would be no room for slander or bickering because we would all be pursuing the mind of Christ, submitting to each other, serving each other, and living selflessly with each other. It's a, it's a mindset that we must pursue. And is that us today? Is that Fellowship Baptist Church Drumheller? Please don't answer. Just, just reflect. Because if it's not, what do we need to do as a body to get there? What do we need to do as a body to live with the mind of Christ? Ponder that. 
Let's be collectively transformed by the beauty and mystery of the incarnation, the mind-boggling humility of Jesus emptying himself and the transformation coming from having the mind of Christ as our own. This is the power of Christmas. Let me end with Malachi 4.2. This is a Christmas verse that maybe you're not aware of. Malachi 4.2 says, But for you who fear my name, the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. This Christmas, the Son of Righteousness is Jesus Christ. The Son of Righteousness is the one who is sent to earth. For the first time now since his incarnation, light is truly shining on this earth. The Son of Righteousness, notice the healing that it brings. Because Jesus comes and he comes to break people free from sin, from death, from Satan, and from slavery. He heals us from our great fears and our greatest problem, which is sin. And no wonder you should go leaping like calves. You know, one of my favorite times on Bailey's family farm is when the calves are born. Because just a few weeks later, they're chasing each other, jumping around. They're just wild. They're going bananas because they're full of joy and freedom. And that's the impact of the incarnation. Leaping for joy. Being excited. Why? Because Jesus took on flesh and died with humility. It's light over darkness. It's healing over death. It's joy over despair. And it's only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only found in his healing wings. This is our hope. This is our joy and peace. And this is our truest expression of love at Christmas and all seasons. Do you believe that? I really hope you do. Let's pray as the worship team comes. Father, give us the mind of Christ as a church. Father, help us to live selflessly. Help us to live in submission to one another. Help us to live with an attitude to serve, O oh Lord. And may we all do it with grateful hearts. Father, because you are our example. Jesus came and he clothed himself in humility, in humanity. And he lived the life we couldn't, and he did so perfectly. And he died the shameful death that we should have. But he rose, as Malachi says, with healing in his wings. And, O oh Lord, may we jump like calves in the springtime. May we be full of joy. And, Father, may our joy spill over to our neighbors and to our community, O oh Lord. Father, may this joy be the joy that produces an awakening in our hearts here in Drumheller, O oh Lord that our joy would be the reason why many men and women who are still lost in slavery of darkness and sin, O oh Lord, would come to the saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, may this be our joy, and may this be our reality as Fellowship Baptist Church. In Jesus' name, amen.